Welcome to the Woody Report. In this podcast, Washington and Lee School of Law Professor Karen Woody and host Tom Fox discuss issues on white-collar crime, compliance, international corruption, securities law and accounting fraud, and internal corporate investigations. From current events to topical issues to academic research and thought leadership, Karen Woody helps lead the discussion on these issues on this new and exciting podcast. The Woody Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This is part two of a two-part series on Caremark claims. In this episode, we take a look at Clovis Oncology, Boeing, and additional cases. We explore what these cases mean for corporations, for boards of directors, for directors and officers individually, how insurance relates into all of these issues, and why boards need to be actively engaged in an oversight role for risk management. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Professor Karen Woody for another episode of the Woody Report. We're continuing our exploration of Caremark and Caremark claims. And today we're going to go to Clovis Oncology. Karen, so first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Happy to be here. Karen, one of the themes I harped on on the last episode was bad facts make bad law. And when I did my write-up in this case and my wife edited it, she said, these guys need to go to jail. And she never says that. But I use that as a point of there, there really were some bad facts here, and they were bad facts in the healthcare industry, which could potentially cost people's lives. Clovis Oncology mm-hmm. was developing a, a cancer drug, and they uh, basically uh, fraudulently listed the results uh, to, indi- to one, try to raise money, and then to two, try to get FDA approval uh, for their medication. And when you have healthcare uh, issues, I think uh, courts are, are very, look very closely at those because of the potential loss of life. But mm-hmm. uh, what did you see in this opinion that board failings led to uh, a Caremark claim being raised? Yeah, well, I guess to start with, to piggyback where we left off talking about the Marchand case and the Caremark standards, what is similar about Clovis here is that you have a similarly situated company in that it had a single product. It was trying to get this one cancer drug, lung cancer treatment drug to market. Um, and so I, I, I stress that simply because one, <laughs> That shows what the board should be aware of and thinking about. It's not, you know, pulled in a number of different directions. But I also think it, it lends some color to the pressure that this, that the board is under in order to make this thing work, too. And that's a little different than where we were with Marchand and Bluebell Creameries. That one maybe is more obvious because you have a product that's already on the market. But it's similar in the sense of if you pull that product off the market, there's nothing else going. So there is this pressure, and I think that pressure is one that the courts acknowledge and also I think is how we get to um, acknowledging that the court is breaching a duty of loyalty because it's, um, you know, it's acting in bad faith. So in this case, again, what what we have is, uh, you know, falsifying or certainly not being straightforward about, you know, these, the particularities of the, the market response or the drug response here. And so they have sort of 
you know, in the weeds here about what was confirmed and non-confirmed results from the different tests. Um, and so what you end up having is, again, this sort of utter breakdown when the FDA and people start to realize that the, the results that the company is promulgating aren't actually accurate. And so the question then is, what did the board knew? When did they know it? And so it's clear in this case, um, unlike in Marchand, where they said, hey, we have a Caremark prong one issue here that we actually think there's no system of monitoring or controls over which the board has oversight. In this case, they did. I mean, there was a committee of, of the board here, at least in theory. Um, it was handled by the nomination governance committee to have some compliance oversight over this. Um, so there was potentially, at least on paper, some oversight that ran to the board. But in this case, it was one where the board had a number of red flags that they had seen and effectively ignored. So we have a prong two, if you will, claim for Caremark, meaning we can find existence of a monitoring system, but the board knowingly ignored a number of, um, of the red flags that were associated from that system. So in this case, um, I don't know how much we have necessarily moved the needle from Marchand, but it's another, again, very important data point that the Caremark standard um, plaintiffs successfully claimed to get over a motion to dismiss. But again, and this one is on one where they say you had enough information to know that um, this was uh, a red flag and you're not complying with um, the FDA standards and that, and that what you're putting out um, publicly is not correct. So again, similar situation, similar outcome, um, but a, a slightly different technical sort of legal standard under this prong two idea that they, again, are ignoring red flags. But I think, you know, just underscored that the court is willing to entertain uh, these challenges under the Caremark standard that they previously wouldn't have even, I mean, it would have been very rare to get over a motion to dismiss. But after Mastron, and again, with terrible facts again, you know, very risky, heavily regulated industries where we do want compliance because of the potential uh, fallout, the potential ramifications of non-compliance, then absolutely you guys need to be um, on top of that and, and making sure that you are leading the company in a way that is hopefully uh, more in line with your compliance standards. So when uh, one of the phrases from the court's opinion was the board had, quote, with hands to their ears to muffle the alarms, end quote. When you have a court writing uh, such inflammatory language, it strikes me that number one, you've really pissed the court off, but two, you really have failed to meet that standard. And once again, we're in a situation where some very bad facts, but uh, I wanna go back to what you started with, which is this was another single product company. And I think that uh, boards of those companies, whether they're the third biggest creamery in America, making number three ice cream in America, or a uh, cancer drug that has not yet gone to market that is still in uh, the research and testing phase, is uh, boards need to be actively engaged in oversight over that product, whatever that product is. Uh, we haven't used the term risk yet. I think we're going to get to that. But uh, that's your risk. And uh, this being a single product, if you're a single product company out there, you've got, as a board, 
to actively engage in overseeing, not managing, but overseeing that risk. And that seems to me to be an equally strong message in a duty to the uh, two prongs you articulated for the Caremark standard. If you're a single product, that's your risk. And there's no excuse for not knowing your risk and there's no excuse for not overseeing that risk. Yeah, that's right. And I think a phrase that we somehow have not brought up yet, but is, was you know foundational in the Marchand case and again comes up in this one was this idea that this is a mission critical product. And that just means you know the company is going to live or die based on the success of this single product and that actually raises the stakes as i said before and certainly raises you know the potential risks of compliance and again i think almost an acknowledgement that this is uh you know the stakes are very high it's mission critical you said another thing i wanted to say about um the clovis case is that the board in this case um as you have noted before tom actually did have some background and they were experts on things like this. So all the more reason for the court to say, you know how these trials go, how these tests go, you know what the protocols are of reporting out results of clinical trials. And so given that you know this, uh, you should have understood and appreciated these red flags of how this is getting reported. And I say that only because the Marchand board, I can't fully remember the full makeup, but there was certainly this understanding that no one was really uh, aware or checking in, or there might not have been any real food safety expert, and certainly no committee about food safety on the board. But in Clovis, there were people who really—it was more of almost a, like you definitely, you definitely knew what should have been the proper way to do this, and you knew that you, they didn't do it that way. So now that you've given me this opening, I have to talk about the board on Bluebell Ice Cream. Bluebell Ice Cream okay. is located in Brenham, Texas, sixteen thousand people largest employer in the county, founded in 1920, uh, family still runs it. Uh, the board was made up of all family friends and or members of the uh, CEO. Um, in other litigation related to the Marchand claim, uh, which is where all this information came out, uh, the C, uh, chairman of the board had either loaned money to, uh, giving funding for projects to, or otherwise had assisted uh, financially or otherwise every board member. So there was some question of whether it was truly independent or not. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that was the third largest ice cream manufacturer in America. Uh, and, and they were good friends of the chairman of the board to the point where uh, after the three deaths from Listeria uh, were publicly reported, the board passed a resolution congratulating the chairman for his great work. Um, and uh, it really points up the need for a professional board and, and an independent board. Thank you for giving me yeah. that opening. Yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> I've forgotten that part. That's, yeah, that's really, that's important information. Uh, but you, uh, that's a great point uh, about there was professional expertise on the Clovis Oncology Board. And one other thing you said uh, early on was, and they talked about this in the opinion, which was the pressure the board was under, the pressure senior management was under uh, to get the drug right and get it mm -hmm. to market. And there was pressure in terms of financing, obviously pressure in terms of FDA approval and going through that compliance process. But I thought it was interesting that the, the court acknowledged <clears throat> simply uh, because it was a single product, literally the entire company was riding on that. And uh, instead of 
taking the position that the Clovis Board did, which was we'll let management do it, it said it was even more reason to have an appropriate level of board oversight. Mm -hmm. So that takes us to our next case, which I have debated this with you for many times, and I still uh, am just amazed at this case, which is Boeing. And this dealt around uh, the two crashes of the 737 MAX, which led to uh, recall of the uh, uh, planes. It led to huge fines against Boeing. It led to one criminal complaint against a Boeing employee. Uh, Boeing fleet was ground, or the 737 MAX fleet was grounded for, I think, 18 months. Uh, huge financial uh, penalties and reputational damage to the company. But once again, we were focused here on the board. We had, uh, and I thought the Delaware court took Caremark really to a whole new level here. And uh, you want to pick it up from there? Yeah. And so, right, we're dealing with the 2018 crash in Java Sea, which, again, killed everyone on board. And then the subsequent one just, I think, not even maybe six months later in Ethiopia. So same, you know, just unbelievable devastation um, and which already, you know, colors the backdrop of, of, of the case. You know, and we can't ignore that, that this was un, like horrific, horrific tragedy. So there definitely is um, some people with pitchforks, but I don't think that that meant that they moved the Caremark standard simply because of this egregious outcome. I think there's enough certainly here to match Marchand, which the court even acknowledges, and the similarity between the facts here and the facts in Marchand. They said they were, these were remarkably similar factual allegations with regard to the lack of expertise or committee on the board related to airline safety in this case, um, the lack of internal reporting systems, certainly um, that run all the way to the board, certainly if there was any whistleblowers or employees or someone who would have been able to have uh, alerted the company to this, um, that you know, the court said that there was no uh, way for that the board to, to to learn that, no process in place for that. Um, they also, you know, looked at the books record chain. They see that the board is not monitoring, discussing, addressing airline safety on any regular basis. Also similar to Bluebell, um, and you know, again, it's just this lack of process or protocols in order to ensure that they are, um, that management was apprising the board and that the board was aware. So for that reason, the court, I think, finds that this would be a Caremark prong one claim, and yet also, and uh, it's also a prong two claim. I mean, there was certainly enough here that the court actually says you could, you could have succeeded also to simply even on a prong two, based on the fact that you sort of ignored the issues from the prior crash. This is the second crash we're now dealing with. So of course there's, major red flags regarding safety at this point. They didn't look into what caused that Indonesian crash. Um, certainly the board's not, you know, reviewing that, going over that. So if there's nothing, I mean, I, I don't want to be flip at all about this unspeakable tragedy, but the idea, like, how are you not looking into what caused that? And lo and behold, six months later, it happens again? That is you know, the definition of ignoring a red flag. And so the court sort of took him the task on both of those um, prongs, saying if you would have succeeded on overcoming a Caremark threshold on either prong, which I think is, again, a very strong statement of the court, and I think because of just the egregious nature of these, of these facts. Court made clear that companies almost have to do 
um, a not simply uh, a risk analysis, but a root cause analysis to determine what are the most basic risks of our organization. And the number of committees that Boeing had, uh, they had several at the board level, but they didn't have one that addressed the most basic risk, which the court, the court said was, if you manufacture airplanes, it's airplane safety. And um, so, number one, do companies need to go through an exercise where they actually make that determination uh, as part of their documentation? And then number two, uh, if there is a major event, uh, very, here it was obviously very public, do boards now need to step up and do their own independent investigation either immediately or, or almost immediately, or can they uh, wait until management uh, does their initial triage and investigation? Um, or are we in some gray area on that? I guess that would be a prong two claim. Right, I, I mean, I think the answer that you and I would give because we're both, you know, recovering lawyers and do a lot of compliance work is that if you can do it, if you can set up procedures and protocols to ensure that there's transparency, there's disclosure, there's documentation of what you're doing, that will always benefit you and the company, you individually as a director and then the company as well. Um, in terms of, you know, and so I think there should be, you know, obviously regular flow of information from management to the board some level of expertise or committee on the board to assess that information, to really be looking at it. I know this is, we're getting into the place where it's not enough to say they told us something. If, you know, sort of like we saw in Clovis, if you know what they're telling you is probably not right, that is in itself uh, a red flag. Um, and so I, I think you're right that the, the board here had a number of committees and they, I think, pushed a lot of it to audit maybe and some others that were evaluating general risk but um, again, they sort of said, but you missed on the mission critical here, which is airline safety. That's really what we're most concerned about with your, with your products. Um, and so I think to answer your question, um, it is you have to have a system in place because if, if we're even in prong one category, if you don't have those systems, you don't have any regular reporting, any process by which the board is apprised of these things that's a big deal i mean that, and that's also low-hanging fruit you should have that you know in place no matter what and that's not just a hindsight is 2020 kind of a thing that's things that you should be thinking proactively of what are the risks to the company in any space um, i think in our day and age now that's going to be cyber breaches and esg maybe regulation it's going to be a number of things that certainly are adding maybe to the plate of people who are needing to um, brief the board. But then in terms of what you said about, I, I think when the answer is we'll wait and see what management tells us, that's never, that's never a great uh, hill to die on, I don't think. That seems like something you should have a little bit more in place rather than relying on management. Because as you said, Everyone's under a lot of stress. There are competing interests here. People do want to give good information. They want to make the board happy. They want the company to succeed. They want this one product to succeed. And so that's why it's called controls and monitoring. It's this idea of like recognizing that there is this creep to uh, move forward with the business pressure driving you as opposed to this backstop really the guardrails of, of the compliance and the monitoring side uh, is, is the reason you have this standard um, 
So I don't know if I answered that, but I hope I hope we were sufficiently like scaring all board members into realizing they need to get all the the important information. <laughs> One of the criticisms in the court's opinion of the board was that it accepted the information management brought forward after both crashes uh, almost unquestioningly. And what uh, when I originally read that opinion, all I could think about was what happened to the business judgment rule. Mm. And does a prong two claim come close to intersecting with the business judgment rule? Or have I really conflated them in a way that's not necessary? Well, it's a good question, and one that I think, at the end of the day, Caremark runs, I don't even know if it's in parallel, I think it's overlapping, it's sort of an overlapping Venn diagram with the business judgment rule. It's sort of, the spirit of the business judgment rule is very much alive in the Caremark standard being a very tricky one to, to succeed on. And so the idea that, I mean, I mean, I think it goes a little bit like to what we were saying about even the Clovis case, that these people should know what is correct or not they should have some indication of being able to push back on management to question what they're saying especially again when you've already had one incident of a crash so maybe we're only dealing with this the actions after the first crash but either way there has to be some ability to test and to prod what management is telling you otherwise the board is well, it might be just a chimera, as they say in, in Marchand. Uh, it, it would be ineffective entirely unless there's some reason you have those people on the board. They should be experts. They should have some ability to think critically about the information they're presented. That's their role. And so uh, I don't know. I don't think that is, I don't think that's a shift in the business judgment rule. Um, I think it's just, again, making sure they're doing their job. Well, once again, we had uh, some very devastating facts uh, leading to uh, a shareholder derivative action which successfully overcame the motion to dismiss and then we had a settlement of this case. There's one last case I would like uh, maybe us to visit on and it's Cardinal Health. Now this case came out of the Northern District of of Ohio and it was a federal district court, a diversity claim applying Delaware law. And this is one of the first ones I had seen outside of Delaware, so that alone intrigued me. But we had um, uh, Cardinal Health was involved in the manufacture and distribution of opioid products, uh, got into trouble uh, during the opioid crisis. There were a couple of settlements around um, the distribution of opioids through the company. Uh, and uh, there was later a shareholder action uh, because Cardinal Health just couldn't seem to get it right, if I can simplify it down to that. And I have to read, I pulled this quote, because this is the money shot that I wanted to ask you about. So, quote, plaintiffs allege here through more than a 10-year period covered in the complaint, the books and record paint a consistent picture of the board's passive receipt of information rather than the director's active engagement, questioning, and monitoring of the effectiveness of the company's anti-diversion controls. In other words, plaintiffs challenged the board's inaction in response to red flags uh, they, that have spurred a affirmative action in overseeing management and the company's compliance program. And this seemed to me to be a, a step beyond even what we had seen in Boeing so I want to, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, what did you see about this case that intrigued you, if anything? 
Well, I, I mean, the fact that it's not in Delaware is intriguing, and it's, as you said, in its own right, that this is, we're basing this on Ohio law, which isn't wildly different, but this is, you know, a breach of duty of oversight. Um, and so the fact that, again, we're not applying this longstanding precedent and all the other sort of subsequent cases out of Delaware uh, is interesting and significant, I think, in itself. But I, you're right, I think the idea that we end up in the same place as you do with Boeing on this idea that, you know, I actually would push back a little bit. I think the lack of an action in the face of red flags is a lot of what Boeing is saying. I, I don't know if I see this as being beyond Boeing, um, you know, because they are sort of saying these are all the things you didn't do. Uh, I mean, maybe that's two sides of the same coin, which is, you know, you, you know, you did some things and they were inadequate. But, uh, but I actually think the failure to act is, is, closer to Caremark than maybe um, doing something that wasn't sufficient. That seems closer to business judgment rule to me, than, but an utter failure to do anything uh, is kind of what the standard was for Caremark. You have to do something. You have to set up, obviously, some system of controls, and then you have to monitor it. You have to do something about it. Um, and so I don't know. I'd be curious. I'd be curious if you would expand on maybe how you see this is moving the needle beyond that. So it was the, the phrase engagement, questioning, and monitoring of the effectiveness of the company's anti-diversion controls. The anti-diversion controls were put in place to prevent diversion of opioid products away from licensed uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, pharmacies for delivery to patients. And uh, I guess it was board in active engagement, questioning, and monitoring. So I'd not seen any language which required engagement and questioning, uh, certainly monitoring the effectiveness of a compliance program, but it just made me, uh, gave me pause to think how active do boards have to be to meet a standard of engagement and monitoring. Yeah, and I think that's good. I, I would see that as like almost really, really nice judicial interpretation of the Caremark standard, even though we're not in Delaware, but this idea of what does it mean to, to monitor effectively? It might be engaging <laughs> and questioning. Um, and so that's why I was like, I see that as very similar, but I actually think I appreciate maybe the clarity of what they, what is it that you expect when you have them look into these compliance programs? And, and so that's maybe how I was seeing this as they're doing something and what they need to be doing is asking questions and, and you know, not just receiving a report and, you know, running off to play golf or something, but actually engaging with it, asking, you know, I think that's kind of what I would have expected. Um, but I don't think you're right. I don't think the Delaware courts have put that fine of a point on it. I think that's right. And so let me circle back to a point uh, we started with, which was this is not a Delaware court decision. And it kind of wants, leads me to ask you a series of questions about uh, not simply the role of the Delaware courts in corporate law in America, but as Delaware Corps refine and expand Caremark, uh, we now have at least one federal district court picking it up. And could this become sort of a standard across the U.S.? And then I'm going to piggyback on that is what's the symbiotic relationship between regulators over boards, whether it's the Securities and Exchange Commission, whether it's the Department of Justice or, or perhaps uh, uh, the Fed or other groups at CFTC that might uh, look at how boards do and could we have a body of 
of law and regulation develop in that manner led by the Delaware courts? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And I, I was thinking that some of the leading actors maybe need to be the regulators because one of the major issues with a number of these claims is the high bar of pleading sufficiently to come to overcome a motion to dismiss. And how do you do that? You need to have discovery. You need to have to see what the board's looked at. You need to inspect the books and records. And so that demand upon the board to look at their records, to, to gather the evidence, is something that's a pretty uh, significant burden on the plaintiffs. And so often we see these cases coming, sometimes on the heels of a regulatory investigation, for a couple of reasons. As we said before, the fact of the regulatory investigation maybe is a red flag in itself. That might be the basis of at least a care mark prong two. And the other reason is that, like, that sort of stirs the water enough and you may find out more facts, you might learn more and be able to, again, have a symbiotic relationship maybe in some ways with the regulator and what the regulator is learning through the course of their administrative sort of agency investigation into their own regulations. And so you see these things dovetailing in that, in that way. Um, and so I do think you're right. It's, it's symbiotic relationship is a really good way to say this interplay between regulators and the Delaware courts and really the plaintiff's bar because almost every one of these cases we've discussed or at least all the ones we have discussed today involved a regulatory body finding evidence of non-compliance whether that's food safety FAA regulations uh, the FDA uh, that's food but um, but also in the um, healthcare space as well so that actually becomes almost this, you know, co-plaintiff, if, if you could use that word. But, you know, this idea that they're both trying to get to the source of it. And then the follow-on plaintiffs are able to piggyback on that. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where we'll, we'll see a lot more coming from Delaware on because of these investigations by regulators. Well, Karen, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode. But uh, as always, it's a ton of fun. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Me too. Thanks so much, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Woody Report. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It was to help get the word out about this newest podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We're going to link to Karen Woody's LinkedIn profile in the show notes. So if you have any questions, uh, you can follow up directly with Karen. This is Tom Fox. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Woody Report.